Welcome to season two of Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Beautiful Teaching is offering practical tips to launch your homeschool. Join us on Monday, November 7th at 8 p.m. Central for a 90-minute seminar to discuss the ABCs of homeschooling. Lindsay Peterson has spent the last several years earning her master's degree in classical education from the University of Dallas. She was homeschooled, and she has since taught at the grammar level in multiple Dallas-area schools and has homeschooled her own children and been instrumental in founding a Charlotte Mason-based homeschool co-op. Participants for this seminar will receive practical tips for launching their homeschool, as well as resource suggestions for educational philosophy, classical curriculum, and homeschool communities. A sample daily schedule for pre-kinder homeschool will also be provided. To register for Lindsay's webinar, go to beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com. That's beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com. Or you can visit our podcast website, classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash courses. Enjoy today's show and thank you for listening. It's a great pleasure to be with you and to, and to meet you as well, virtually. Well, that's right. And thank you. I know that uh, you're suffering a bit of a head cold, so... We will keep that in mind, but I'm reminded uh, just hearing your voice of the first time I heard your voice, which was virtually. Um, at the time of this recording, I'm just finishing up a day of school, and it's just in the afternoon here, but it's quite late for you um, being uh, there at your school in France. And the first time we met uh, was through a mutual friend, uh, and as I recall, I was talking to him about um, some of our uh, visions for education, uh, in particular, a vision for the education of young men. And I remember discussing with him um, my desire to read more and learn more about the work of an educator uh, by the name of Andre Charlier. And he said, mm -hmm. well, if you'd like to know more about Charlier, you need to meet my friend, Ferdy McDermott, and hear about the school <laughs> that he's running uh, in, in, in France. And so uh, you were very generous with your time, and I was eager as soon as we got off the phone to have another conversation. So thank you for being here. And I just wonder, uh, just for the, the, the benefit of our listeners here, and uh, for my co-host, Adrian, who is meeting you for the first time, uh, could you just tell us your story and uh, how you got involved in education and what sort of brought you to uh, the good work you're doing at your school today? Sure, yes, I'll try and keep it reasonably brief. Um, so I'm 50 this year. Um, when I was at, uh, I went to school in the south of England in Southampton at uh, King Edward VI School, Southampton, which is, a, as its name suggests, um, is a survival of the Reformation. <laughs> but uh, with also, um, if you like, a refoundation of a, of, a, of a chantry school that had existed beforehand. So very much in the English grammar school tradition, and it was still, it was still that way when I was there in the 80s, very much the end of a, of, of a tradition. 
And um, then I went to university in Edinburgh and studied French and Scandinavian languages and Celtic languages. So it was a, um, a linguistic and literary uh, four years that I had there. And um, then I, I almost... I almost went in for the priesthood. I started some formation in the Diocese of Portsmouth and changed my mind pretty quickly. And um, for want of, how can I put it? I had a, I had a, a, a desire to, um, to be, to, to do something um, in the line of um, culture and education. Having been a Catholic, raised a Catholic, um, but gone through. Um, an Anglican school that I loved and enjoyed. Okay. And um, I got involved in two projects in the 90s, um, publishing Catholic books and publishing a magazine for Catholic schools. I hadn't been to a Catholic school myself. I'd been to an Anglican school. Um, and it was through doing that work for about five or six years in the 90s that um, um, I came to know something about the situation of Catholic schools in the UK and um, <laughs> shall we say was talked into a, a crazy project of start, starting my own school with a, with a few of the um, uh, people who, who wrote for our magazine which was called Mentor, the Catholic Education Journal, started in 1996 or 1997 and then it, it continued until 2003. So to cut a long story short, um, together with nine colleagues, including a priest and a retired Christian brother, um, a couple of married couples with their children, um, I was single then, I'm still single now, um, we persuaded a French bishop to let us take over um, an empty uh, junior seminary building in the Vendée, which is in the west of France. <laughs> And you might say, well, you know, what are all these English people and Australians and Irish um, setting up a school in the west of France? Well, um, I suppose at the time, in the 90s, a lot of English people were selling up their houses in the south of England and buying castles in France. <laughs> so we, we, followed, we followed in that uh, sort of movement um, uh, which was uh, something to do with uh, looking for a slower pace of life, trying to get back to basics, moving out of London into the countryside and so on. But also we were thinking logistically that uh, either we would have to, for the kind of school we wanted to create, either we would have to create in a big city where there'd be plenty of demand or we'd have to be a boarding school in the countryside. So, so this is how we ended up in, in, in the west of France. Uh, with a local Catholic community that was very keen to welcome us, mm. and also um, the local government uh, in this part of France was very, very keen on this kind of project. You, you may know something about the Vendée. It's the it's the part of France that sort of resisted the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that there is a there is a bit of a history of uh, a little bit of a different approach in the Vendée, and then that was that was part of the reason why we. Well, we ended up settling here 20 years ago, 2001, and the school opened in 2002. Um, because I hadn't, I had been a publisher before. I hadn't been teaching. I, I was, I had other, a couple of other people uh, running the school for me for the first five years, um, and then I took over as headmaster after that, and I've been doing that for the last 15 years. 
Um, for many years, I was teaching pretty much full-time French, French literature, English, English literature, history, a little bit of Latin. Uh, but now I'm um, mainly spending my time trying to find ways to fix the roof. <laughs> sure. That makes sense. Well, I have to confess, Ferdy, that um, the romantic in me uh, has uh, just fallen in love with your project and your vision, but also with your building. Um, and so I just wonder if you could describe um, just if, if we were to close our eyes and to imagine as you just sort of paint a picture for us, uh, what your facilities look like and, and perhaps even, even some of the surrounding geography, uh, what is the place that your school is in? What is it like? Well, uh, Chavagne, which comes from the Latin, the dog Latin, if you like, cabanas, cabins, was probably in Roman times a collection of huts and cabins near a Roman villa, which was on an adjacent hill. Our settlement um, on top of this hill um, was made up of local tradesmen, probably. There were also tin mines and so on. Um, um, there's, it's built on granite. So we're on a little hill, we, uh, the river on either side of the hill, two different rivers, um, on a place that's been settled for several thousand years. In the Middle Ages, in the 12th century, uh, we know that there was a Benedictine monastery on the site where we are now. Um, uh, and I discovered recently that we have um, three boys in the school called de Belleville, whose, whose family gave this land to the church in the 12th century. <laughs> so wow. There's a, there's a great historical link there. And we're in the middle of the French countryside. There are, there are beautiful white cows everywhere. The French love their cows because they love their steak and chips, steak, steak feet. <laughs> Um, <laughs> there are lots of small farms, and also most people have their own little vegetable gardens as well. Um, the landscape is full of religious imagery, because rather like perhaps Ireland or Poland or countries like that, or Slovakia or something like that, we're in a part of the world which was very, very pious in the 19th century. Mm. Um, and also the clergy um, were very much on the side of the poor in the time of the revolution here and, and um, were the sort of heroes and leaders of the people, you know. Mm. So every every corner of every street and every farm has a calvary or a statue of Our Lady or a little chapel or whatever. Mm. So those are all around us. We have three chapels, <laughs> um, one to St. Joseph, one to Our Lady, and one a large one for the school that seats a couple of two or three hundred, with a beautiful church organ. Um, and uh, the building is really at the centre of a small French town with its two boulangeries where you can buy your baguette and your croissant in the morning, mm -hmm. um, and um, a, a wine shop where you can go and taste different wines, <laughs> um, a butcher shop where you can get the, all the meat is local. Um, so we're, we're uh, you know, we're living the French dream in that way. <laughs> we're wow. certainly in the middle of uh, La Belle France. And lots of windmills as well, because during the French Revolution, uh, the local peasants who were busy fighting for um, the church and the king against the 
godless revolutionaries, that was the way they saw it, um, they would, when the soldiers were coming to burn down their village or whatever, they would turn the sails of the windmill as a kind of semaphore to send messages to the next village. Hmm. And there are a few places around here uh, where in 1793, 1794, uh, there were big massacres. In 1794, for example, in February, there were three or 400 men, women and children, mostly, mostly old men and women and children who were killed in this village. There's a village nearby where there were a few hundred pardons of the church. The church was set fire to. Um, um, and this, the reaction against that persecution of Catholics by the revolution in the 1790s meant that throughout 1900, the place was an extremely religious uh, part of France. It sent missionaries all over the world. So we have in our little village um, uh, three convents, <laughs> for example. And so there's only about two and a half thousand, three thousand people in the village, but I would say there are probably about 50 or 60 chapels here. Mm -hmm. So well, it's, it's quite unusual in that way. Well, your ex your explanation of the atmosphere um, clearly allows your students to experience a very, very full and rich dynamic experience. Um, I noticed I was watching a video of your school, about your school, and it was just beautiful to hear the stories from some of the students of the impact that it's had on their their spiritual life. And mm. some, something that really, really struck me in watching your video was the amount of, um, well, the balance of, of, of the three virtues of it, the intellect virtue, the moral virtue, and the physical virtues, all three were, seem to be very balanced. Mm. And I, and, mm. and I feel like in a lot of our um, classical schools today, there's a real strong emphasis on moral virtue and intellectual virtue, but we've lost or maybe just haven't recaptured in our classical schools today the importance of physical virtue. Um, but I in order... I don't think that... Yeah, yeah and I, I guess... That, that's not, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a new problem. Right. And, well, I guess what I wanted to ask you was like, in order to really have a good balance of, you know, properly ordering the mind, the body and the soul of a human being, we really need all three virtues. And I would love to hear from you how, how you can help and how you do help students to order all three of those virtues. I, I, I fear that we've we've lost or like, you, you know, maybe haven't really understood the importance of physical virtue, but your video showed such a beautiful balance of the students doing physical activities like horseback riding, polo, I mean, ping pong, basketball, canoeing, like there was so much in, in, in addition to the music, in addition to learning chemistry and experiencing it in a rich way and and I really would love to just have you expand on how that makes a, a huge difference in shaping the whole person. Well I can remember when I was about seven or eight um, Adrian I was at primary school in England and um, hearing we were told the story of Alfred the Great. Now Alfred the Great uh, in the ninth century in a period of about 15, 20 years of peace from the Viking invasions, um, started a sort of educational uh, revolution in England. 
And one of the things that stayed in my imagination was that he divided his day into um, three parts of eight. <laughs> so he had um, eight hours of prayer and study, eight hours of physical exercise and eight hours of sleep. And um, he was very keen that he would stick to that rule. I don't know whether he was very successful in it, but he apparently invented a clock uh, that, that there was a candle with little pins that would, would fall out every eight hours. Yeah. And um, uh, in, in that in that way, I suppose he's picking up on um, an aspect of, of classical education, which is often narrowed down to the trivium and the quadrivium, and there's no mention of um, gymnastics and music is kind of sidelined and becomes really the study of literature. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, but if you actually go back to uh, the classical world, uh, you had to train the body before you could train the mind. And um, that's, I don't think there was any sort of particular time in, in, in history when um, that was jettisoned, except perhaps if you you want to go back to the the enlightenment and the sense of kind uh, of dualism, separating out body and spirit and kind of denigrating the body. Perhaps there might have been some elements of Protestantism that were a bit denigrating of the body, possibly. But to be honest, the Jesuit schools as well were so um, thorough in their teaching of classical Latin and Greek and mathematics and so on that um, physical education um, and gymnastics and so on didn't get much of a look in for centuries. And, and, and that was that's very much a debate of uh, Trey mentioned the Charlier brothers. <coughs> and th this was very much a debate at the end of the 19th century, the early 20th century. Um, to what extent does do we need to reconnect with um, what French philosophers would call le réel, the real, mm -hmm. tangible, the physical? Um, uh, from an education that had become a bit disembodied. Um, I, I would say that we haven't, to be honest, got a very developed philosophy of it. It's just a conviction, um, uh, really, of, uh, you know, mensano and corpore sano, kind of balance, uh, as you say, between uh, different aspects. But I would say the thing that our school... Um, picks up on more than perhaps many other schools. It's not so much um, an emphasis on sport and music, but 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 the centrality of prayer. Because, you know, a lot of... Um, it's sometimes a weakness in Catholic families um, that, you know, they, they'll, they'll go to Mass on Sunday with great regularity, but a lot of Catholic families don't pray together at all. Mm. Um, maybe... Evangelical families might be stronger at that, I don't know, but um, a lot of people who lead busy lives, um, if they fall out of the habit of having family mealtimes, for example, um, Protestants don't have a tradition really of going to church every day, which has been a Catholic tradition in the past. Mm -hmm. um, it's possible to, to be uh, intellectually Christian, um, but to sort of put that in a different box from school. And Alfred the Great 
<laughs> he was at he was at Daily Mass. He was, um, you know, in England, for example, that the students in some of these big uh, ecclesiastical foundations like Eton and Winchester and so on, they would be saying the office while they were making their beds. Mm. Uh, they'd be going to mass every day. Um, they'd be saying the rosary, um, and and this is something that that everybody did, and and it was, it was at the heart of education. And some of the 19th century revivals, like uh, in rugby school, for example, of Dr. Thomas Arnold, they they took that view as well, that uh, the worship of God ought to be at the centre of every kind of educational endeavour. And if you look at the landscape in England of all of these schools that were built in the 19th century, and there were dozens and dozens of them, they, they all look like they were built in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the heart of every single one of them is is a chapel that looks like a medieval monastery, mm. and th- that's uh, I mean that's the tradition, if you like, that we're um, uh, sort of tapping into, is that nineteenth um, century revival, um, which in English terms wasn't really Catholic at its heart, although. towards the end of the 19th century, there were Catholic uh, monks and so on who came and founded Catholic versions of of these uh, schools sort of copied from from Dr. Thomas Arnold's rugby. And Newman was part of that too. Newman was, he he founded a school and a university. And um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, the idea really there was uh, the Christian pedia, which is going back to your trivium and quadrivium, of the ancients, but also with um, gymnastics and music and sport and 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 prayer very much at the centre. And of course, that's not an English idea, but but an Egyptian idea. <laughs> oh, expand on that, please. Okay. Well, you know, Plato. Whenever Plato wants you to listen, he'll he'll talk about Egypt. Because Egypt, for the Greeks, was the place where all this mysterious knowledge came from, mm. and uh, writing, for example, you know, came came from Egypt, and um, the, the the first philosophers came from Egypt. But I mean, there's not much evidence of whether or not that's true. But there's, there's a lot of the Greeks saying um, that the, the, the the influence that they have is from Egypt, and there's evidence that some of them spent time in Egypt. But Saint Mark supposedly. Um, went to Alexandria, which was mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, Greek civilization was flourishing uh, more than it had ever flourished in Athens. And that, that was that was the center of Greek civilization in the Christian era. And Alexandria, the greatest library in the ancient world and so on. And uh, he uh, supposedly, uh, or his community, started um, a Christian... Uh, school or co- co-op of schools perhaps around the great library in Alexandria mm-hmm. uh, based on the platonic idea of um, uh, the healthy mind the healthy body and the the trivium and the quadrivium um, but in in his view going on then to philosophy and theology and it wasn't just for boys it was for girls as well mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Rather like if you go to a mission country and 
you know, the first thing that the Christian missionaries do is they start schools and hospitals. This, this is what was happening in the early church in Egypt. The Christians were saying, one of the great things we're going to get from being Christians is we're going to be educated. And this is part of the fullness of life that comes from, um, you know, the, the light the light of Christ. And so uh, this idea that, that everybody could be educated, boys and girls, um, was happening in Alexandria right. already uh, in the second century, um, and we know quite a lot about it. We, we, we know even about their curriculum because St. Clement of Alexandria wrote uh, quite a lot about it. Um, and um, that that's really the education that people like Arnold and to a certain extent Newman were trying to um, rehabilitate, even though it had perhaps been a bit sidelined. But in, in terms of the trivium and the quadrivium, it was that tradition from e the, the Greek and Roman tradition filtered through the Christian community in Egypt, which was at the basis of all education in Europe. Because if you look at people like St. Patrick, who came to Ireland, um, you look at the Benedictines, all of these people were influenced by the monastic traditions of St. John Cassian, mm -hmm. who had gone from uh, France and Spain down into Egypt, spent seven years there, came back, and the, the, the way of educating uh, young monks uh, in Egypt was <laughs> was Plato's way. It was the Christian Padilla. Mm -hmm. and, and this was what then formed the basis of the medieval education that the Irish monks practiced, because St. Patrick was educated in Auxerre, for example, where, where, where Cassin had been. And, and then in the 800s, when you have Alfred the Great with his great revival in England, he sends to Ireland for teachers because the English Latinists are so bad. And you get Charlemagne uh, in Paris and, and in the Sorbonne and in, in Aachen. Uh, and, he, and he sends for Irish monks too. So uh, the, the, the odd thing was when you say, when I say education goes back to Egypt, it really is incredible that um, uh, civilization has come from the Middle East several times, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. Uh, we talk about the Fertile Crescent and the you know, Mesopotamia and the Babylonians and the Greeks and, the, and so on. But even in the Christian era, uh, this, this, this tradition, which in France people just associate with 19th century England, is, uh, is actually uh, an Egyptian one. Mm -hmm. I'm so happy that you expanded on that. A couple things. Um, my saint, my patron saint is Catherine of Alexandria. And, wow. you know, she she was martyred after converting 200 philosophers. <laughs> you know, she was, a, oh, wow. she, she was a teenager, a beautiful teenage girl. And, and I bet she was ed educated at the catechetical school of Alexandria. So, yes. And she was she was a brilliant rhetorician and, and, and used that gift to to share the gospel and convert 200 experts, <laughs> philosophers. Um, and then, we, you know, then we have St. Athanasius from Alexandria, who wrote the beautiful work on the Incarnation. 
And mm. so I'm really thrilled to hear you talk about Alexandria. Um, we have a lot of great, you're, you're right, a lot of great Christian saints, church fathers coming out of there. Um, sure. I really appreciate you talking about Christian paideia. And I know that some of our listeners are new to classical education and really just don't even know what paideia is. So can mm. you explain to them what paideia is and, and perhaps maybe the difference of of uh, Plato's paideia and then our Christian-based paideia? Oh, well, I'm not, a, I'm not a great philosopher. I'm more of a doer than a thinker, but um, um, I'm a great reader. <laughs> so um, I would say that... Um, Well, okay, now you're, you're Orthodox and I'm Catholic, so here's something that I think probably we'll both chime with. It has been said to me, I don't know how true this is, that um, Catholics and Orthodox, in so much as they have the same language of grace, would say that grace perfects nature, whereas some strict Protestants would say grace supplants nature. Mm. And um, I would say that the educational tradition that uh, Plato left uh, was almost there, really. <laughs> that um, that it was it was it was uh, waiting for Christ to perfect it. It was very much uh, like Saint Paul preaching to the Greeks at the altar of the unknown God. That the Greeks were in a state of expectancy, yeah. mm-hmm. and um, that the way that the soil. You know, our, uh, Jesus Christ probably spoke Greek. Galilee was part of the Greek world. Uh, the Gr- Christian writings are all in Greek, aren't they? Um, uh, I would say that um, the difference between the Christian idea and Plato is Christ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of the transcendentals, of goodness, beauty, and truth, um, the idea of um, man reaching for God and God reaching out for man um, is, uh, is, is very pertinent. And also the idea that physics comes before metaphysics, that, uh, you know, the whole um, Aristotelian way of looking at the senses and learning through the senses and moving from the world that we can see and the things that, you know, moving step by step uh, in a way that reason can then support propositions about uh, to do with faith, mm-hmm. um, that there is no disconnect, that um, that our faith can enlighten our reason. And, and I think that um, uh, Clement of Alexandria's idea of a proper education was a complete education. And the the idea in the early church was, you know, the Greeks had had that sorted. You know that um, the church was not against science, wasn't against learning. The church was actually very keen to be at the heart of it. Um, you know, just like Saint Augustine. For all Saint Augustine was setting up the city of God uh, against the you know the old roman order he was really 
actually a, a, an example of how the old order flowed into the new and 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 how um, the kind of education that the Greeks were dispensing was preparing preparing for for Christ and in some Eastern churches they even have <laughs> they even have icons of uh, Socrates and Plato don't they yeah, that's true that's true you know Ferdy one of the things that I really like about you is that you are let's say to borrow a phrase from Newman someone who is deep in history and as you said that comes through your reading but I think it also comes through your practice and you don't strike me as someone who just sort of longs for some return to some golden age, let's say, as if there were ever such a thing. But you, you seem to glean these golden things from the past, these things that um, need to be preserved and need to be brought into uh, the current conversation and the current uh, institutions of education and, frankly, the, the current lives of men, women, and children today uh, through education. Mm -hmm. And I love what you say about a complete education. And uh, I would love this conversation to um, sort of aim as we move forward to uh, hearing about some of the ways that you do just that, offer a complete education um, for the students uh, that attend your school. And uh, part of that, and perhaps on the way to that, um, I'd love to hear a bit more about your thoughts um, relevant to the life of prayer. And as I recall, um, something you've used in a talk before, um, this idea of a, uh, a school without a chapel being like an angel without wings. Maybe you could tell us the origin of that quote and, and talk about what it means to you as an educator. Mm. Well, it, it, it's from a book um, uh, called Godliness and Good Learning which by David Newsom, who's famous for a book on the convert cardinals on Manning and Newman, but he's also a Victorian church historian of some repute and renown. And he just recounts an anecdote of um, two Anglican clergymen talking about um, plans for a new school. And, and the phrase comes up, a college without a chapel is like an angel without wings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, that goes back to what I was saying that about, um, I mean, there was one very humble Anglican clergyman in the middle of the 19th century who saw an opportunity in the wake of the Industrial Revolution of a middle class that was growing up without any real religious influence and uh, he wanted to create schools for them. And the, the, his school that he created was Lansing College, which has the biggest chapel of any school in the world, I think. Mm -hmm. It looks like a, an enormous cathedral. Um, and, and this was, um, how, can I, how can I put it? I mean, uh, well, in fact, when we're talking about balance, one of the things that I say to teachers when they come to join our school we talk about a document, it's not a, it's not a scriptural document, it's a Catholic document from the Vatican, Vatican II, actually, called Gravissimum Educationis, yeah. where it talks about what are, the, what are the key points of an education. And it's very classical, although it, it doesn't say much about sport and gymnastics, but it does say that, um, that a good education should be broad. Mm -hmm. 
So it shouldn't be like a, a Christian madrasa where you're just learning the scriptures. It should be broad. It should be deep. So you should you should be learning more than magazine knowledge. You should be learning about the nature of things and things that you couldn't learn just from reading a magazine. So it should be broad and it should be deep. It should also be of high quality um, because um, you know a Christian seeks perfection. And um, it should also contain a, a formation of um, in morality so that young people were not just do good, but choose the good. Mm-hmm. And lastly, it said that they should have, um, they should be taught how to pray. And and that would be, uh, that would be very much our, 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 our blueprint, really, that, uh, that wish list, if you like. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. When you're looking at, when you're looking at bringing teachers in to help uh, get on board for that sort of vision, um, mm. what qualities do you look for in a teacher in order to put together a faculty that can offer um, an education that meets those those qualities that you just listed? Um, I would I would say that probably the most important thing. Uh, in a teacher, it can be straightened out if you if you haven't got it. But the most important thing in a teacher is that he or she should have had good teachers. Hmm. And that is a problem in um, in a society that's in in certain places trying to rebuild itself. You know, so I mean, we have had, for example, in the past, some very good teachers from the states, precisely because. Uh, the revival in classical education in the States is something current. And um, whereas in the, and, 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 it's, and it's a big thing. Whereas in, in the UK, it's a patchy thing, really. And um, probably the best educated people uh, in Britain come from the expensive private sector, which is increasingly godless <laughs> so you won't necessarily find um the right kind of people there but i, I think it, the, the best teacher training is to have had good teachers yourself um so i would say that that is that's the first thing we look for actually um does this person look like they've been they've had a positive experience of education themselves mm-hmm. um which then they can per- perpetuate um uh, what other qualities? Well, I mean, um, prayerfulness, because I think you have to be a person of prayer teaching, particularly in a boarding school, otherwise you'll crack. Um, because teaching teaching does does require a strong psychological makeup, I would say. Mm-hmm. So it's not for the fragile. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. And and also, I mean, it, it, you, children expect you to be the same every day. You know, it's so comforting for them for you to, if you can be like that for them. Yeah. And and I often have to say, I have to say this to parents as well when, um, and they they're asking for some sort of advice, and I say, well, look, you know, children expect adults to be like walls. You know, when they push the wall, they don't expect it to move, mm-hmm. um, and that gives them security. So, so teachers who are mercurial and unpredictable really are a, 
<laughs> terribly difficult to deal with. So it doesn't mean that teachers should be boring. You want them, you want them to have uh, you know a big box of tricks, but you need to be pretty robust. So robustness and also having had a good experience of education, I'd say, and being being prayerful because it's that it's that prayer life that gives the teacher then a kind of uh, source of strength and, and resituates them in, in what they're supposed to be doing. That it's also about reflection, being able to stand back from what you're doing. I'm curious, what does your teacher formation look like? How how do you feed your teachers? How do you form them? What kind of things do you have them read? You know, what do your meetings look like? No. Um, well, mm, I would say we're probably, uh, compared to, to what you guys probably do in the States, we are a bit anarchical. I mean, in, in English school, in English private schools, when I was at school myself in the 80s, and I know they were like this in the 90s and the, the earlier, the, 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 about the time I started the school, I went back and did part-time, dividing my time between France and England, teacher training myself. So I, I could see how things were working in private schools in the UK still then. Quite often, you'd a brilliant graduate would come out of university somebody who'd had a good education themselves at school and they'd be handed a book and just put in the classroom mm -hmm. and uh, and expected to dispense the kind of education that they themselves had dispensed now uh, we're not quite that bad but um we would be very careful about choosing some you know we, we would only choose people who knew their stuff so we would tend to favor you know, graduates of good universities like Oxford and Cambridge, for example. Um, um, in our staff meetings, what do we talk about? Well, um, I would say that we talk a lot about, um, <laughs> this might make your stomach turn, inclusivity in the sense that we're always looking out to see, is there any child being left behind? Mm -hmm. So, and that's kind of a buzzword in the UK at the moment, inclusivity. But what I mean by that is that is there anybody who's going slower than the others? Is there need anyone who needs extra support? Is there anyone who might seem that they're bullied, needs some extra sort of attention? So that's certainly something that comes up in staff meetings. Um, our staff that we all go to daily mass, so we're always we're praying together. Um, we do have some readings that we we, we do in, in, in pedagogy. So they might be uh, uh, people like John Senior, for example. Um, uh, also um, classics, like there's somebody called Brother Agathon who has wrote a book called The, uh, the Twelve Virtues of a Good Catholic Christian Teacher. Um, we have a number of resources that we share often e each year with new teachers from an organization in the States called NAPSIS. I don't know if you know it, mm -hmm. if it exists anymore. But, um, um, there's also, uh, also a, a number of um, Vatican documents on uh, lay Catholics in schools. Catholic school on the threshold of the third, third millennium, and also particularly Pius XI's um, 
encyclicals, Venerius Magistri, that divine teacher from the 1920s, where he's, it's the first time really that the Catholic Church is addressing the question of what should the, what should the Catholic school be doing in the modern world? Mm-hmm. And he makes the point too, that a Catholic school is not just, shall we say, Bible bashing. <laughs> a Catholic school, um, you know, what makes a good Catholic baker is he makes good bread. <laughs> so, you know, yes. it, it should be about giving children a good education. And he, interestingly, and we talk about this a lot because uh, we talk about the questions of, you know, whether our education should be more or less child-centred. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's something that's, there's a tension there. And we discuss this amongst ourselves because, you know, we have scouts in the school, for example. We're interested in the, the pedagogy of Baden-Powell, particularly as it's translated into Catholic scouting in the, in the 20s in France. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Jacques Sevin. And then the whole pedagogy of the Charlier brothers, which is, which is very similar, really. It's to do with evincing a sense of responsibility in teenagers so that they can become leaders of younger boys. That was very much what André Charlier did. And also this contact with real life, real nature, physical endeavor, a taste for exertion and effort and all that sort of thing. Um, But actually, Pius XI in the 20s was warning against um, a wave of naturalism coming into education. Um, So there is a debate there, you know, that there is a debate in, in... uh, how much authority can you give to children? We give boys authority in the school, by the way. So, you know, we have 16 or 17 year olds who, who might be supervising um, studies or, you know, uh, with some sort of level of delegation, might be putting the younger boys to bed and then we would give them instructions and check on them and that kind of thing. They would We would have them running debate clubs or games or different things like that. Um, um, I think, and that, uh, that's, and there's a system of, of houses and house captains and so on, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is all all kind of reinforced with lots of checks and balances. So, inside the school, we have houses. I mean, after COVID, now our numbers have shrunk from about 50 down to 30, 33. So the school is kind of teetering here, here at the moment. But we've four houses, there are eight boys in each house, and those houses are run by the house captain, but there's also a house master or a house mistress who keeps an eye on what's what's going on. Um, so I'd say that we, um, I don't know. I mean, that, 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 that I don't know what the place of that would be in your American classical education movement, the empowerment of student leadership. It's something that's very much part of the, um, 19th century English revival in education. It has its place in Jesuit education in the 16th and 17th centuries. They had captains and generals and so on in classes. But well, I, if I could jump in here for a minute, Ferdy, I, I think I could speak to that just briefly. And 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 I, and afterwards, I'd like to ask a question on behalf of a teacher who finds him or herself in, um, let's say, a typical uh, school in the states. Um, you know, you mentioned John Sr., and to my knowledge, he's about 
it, well, it's a fairly short list of folks like him that we have to draw from. And so we not only sort of um, suffer from a lack of, let's say, um, educational fathers um, in that vein, but also um, just even our environment is, is not, um, well, we just haven't been around as long as, um, as, long as uh, even your village has. <laughs> and so uh, there's, there's a lack of history there too. And so I wonder, um, you know, it seems to me that the encouragement to teachers, for teachers to read, to be deep in history, uh, to, um, you know, do as, uh, as, as I've noticed Adrian does, to just return to the sources and to know that, um, you know, this movement, um, I'd say, Adrian, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, it's something like 25, 30 years old in the States. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's, so, so it's still extremely uh, young. And I think one of the things that, um, one of the markers, let's say, that I've noticed is that a lot of schools have adopted um, sort of this, this mere Christianity model that comes from the good work of C.S. Lewis. Um, but of course, uh, that's created a lot of schools that are, are, you know, in some ways by necessity operating in the hallway, to use his analogy. Um, mm. And when I look at your school, I see a school that is, is very, um, very much um, stepping into the, the fullness of the room uh, that... I know exactly, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, C.S. Lewis. There's a man who had a terrible ex experience of education. <laughs> if you've read his *Surprised by Joy*, mm -hmm. I mean, he he, he was uh, had was at horrible schools, and um, and 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 in fact, uh, Baden Powell is another person who wasn't happy at school. Mm -hmm. So there are tensions there. But it's true that uh, certainly it was part of my idea. I was my idea here in Chavan was the 19th century idea of the school with its chapel, with a certain amplitude, mm -hmm. big refectory. You know that this was all part of the idea from day one. Perhaps it was a little bit, um, uh, you know, hubristic, but there we go. That was the idea, and we're here, and we've been here for 20 years. Um, and it's true that a lot of the the efforts that you have in the states. They, they, they have, they're great people, but they're, but, but they're small. Maybe they're just, I mean, um, they're small, but they're successful. I don't, they're, not, they're not objectively any, any smaller than we are. We're a small school too. We just have a big grand building with a bit of a history behind it. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love us to have a couple of hundred pupils, but um, it, hasn't, it hasn't happened. Sure. Um, and I don't... There aren't very many um, classical schools with a boarding element that, that get past 40 or 50 pupils, really, in the world. Right. Right. Um, well, I do. Well, I, I, I think in, in terms of feasib feasibility and viability of this kind of education, John Senior, you mentioned John Senior, he seems to anticipate that. I mean, he, he, in, his, in his book, that I'm, You've seen that now, sort of privately circulated book about um, his ideal school. Yeah. He anticipates that you'd have five or six teachers who would be friends who would come together mm -hmm. as a community of faith and they would have daily mass and they would pray together and they would be friends and then they would 
set up a school with no pupils at all and then see if anybody comes. <laughs> and and that kind of school would never have more than 40 or 50. Yes. Um, and, and you're getting close to, you're getting painfully close to Rousseau's Emile, mm. who, who sort of teaches himself with a tutor who arranges experiences for him and puts the right books out for him to find and so on. This kind of education where you have one teacher for 10, you know, you have five or six teachers, possibly 10 teachers or more for, 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 for 50 kids is never going to educate the world yeah. unless you have an awful lot of people involved in education. So, I mean, there's a, there's a big tension there. We had in the first year of the school, the first seven years, we had a Christian brother here, retired guy who's, who's died now, passed away, lovely man, brother Moylan, Australian. And he, he joined the Christian Brothers when he was 15. Mm -hmm. And he had his first class of 70 when he was 19. Wow. wow. And they, they managed to give them a good education. Yeah. Well, and and, that, and they, that kind of education that they gave them was nothing like um, the education that, that your schools or my school dispense yeah. now. Well, it does seem to me, and, and this, is, this is just my observation, that, that we are at an inflection point because it makes sense that as teachers would continue to read and, and be deep in history, that they would come across uh, these examples of those who have gone before us. And, mm. and they would have this desire to, um, to again, uh, step into that spirit that, that they so embodied. Um, many of them up against... Um, you know, as much, if not more, um, uh, you know, problems and, and forces uh, politically and otherwise working against them. I'm delighted to hear about uh, the sort of the community that you find yourself in that, that lends so much support to what you're doing at Chavan. And I just wonder if I could ask a question on behalf of the teacher who finds uh, him or herself at a school that uh, is doing good work. Um, and yet, um, let's say this person has been reading these books you've mentioned or, or comes mm. across your school mm. and falls in love with the vision and just, just desires mm. uh, to do more and to, 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 to go deeper. And, and, and I just wonder, um, other than to continue reading, what sort of encouragement might you have for a teacher who says, you know, um, I, I don't have, you know, um, uh, you know, a, uh, uh, a wonderful historical setting with with the beautiful white cows and and the leaky roof as as it were, but still I'd take that if i could if I could have sort of this this environment. I find myself in the middle of um, the city that uh, seems so uh, bent against me. What sort of encouragement would you have for the educator who finds him or herself in that position? Well, um there was um a poet laureate in England in the 19th century called Robert Southey, who wrote this lovely poem called The Scholar. Mm. Um, and, and it's about keeping company with the dead. Mm. <laughs> um, I would say that um, we can all be discouraged, and I'm sometimes, sometimes discouraged here. Sure. So, um, and <laughs> what I do is uh, I, I pray. Um, but also I, I, I read. <laughs> and, um, um, I would say that kind of, uh, I mean, you said it yourself, that uh, um, it's, not a, it's not a form of escapism. It's a, it's a form of enracination. 
Mm. Um, binding ourselves to our forefathers. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a new kind of uh, lexio divina, really, because it's it's about um, for, for our generation of people who kind of felt that we caught the tail end of the old culture but didn't get it completely. Mm-hmm. We're always making up for our uh, <laughs> lack of formation. Yeah. And lack of knowledge, so that you know that we 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 can tr- transmit it more perfectly. And and boy, that's so it. true. You look, you look at I don't, I don't I'm not an expert on this woman, but you know that Marva Marva Collins, um, back in the fifties or something, there was a um, uh, an African American lady who was starting up uh, schools that were teaching Shakespeare and grammar and times tables when everyone else was learning learning by the syllabic method how to read and uh, you know that kind of thing are you familiar with her marva collins no i don't believe so well marva collins there's there's a film called the marva collins story but anyway she she started up um schools in the 70s 60s 70s where um, mostly black children from underprivileged areas in the States um, were just taught the classics. She's perhaps in the line of people like Edie Hirsch. You know Edie Hirsch who says, yeah, that's this idea of the core knowledge, you know, the you shouldn't teach skills, you should teach the good literature and the good culture and history, and that will engender and evince the skills in the kids afterwards. So she's very much in that line. It's just teach the three R's and the children will excel. And that this is this is what Edie Hirsch is doing it school district by school district in the States. There is a movement outside of classical Christian revival. There's a movement across the states that people like Hirsch are pushing, which is bringing back content. Mm-hmm. As opposed to just vague project work, you know, bringing back content and structure and progression uh, in in the public school system and bringing back a common culture. Of course, the the problem the problem then is, uh, you know, how to curate that culture. And of course, people will, you know, that's where the next battle's going to be. I think people people will people will be keen on children being able to read good literature and difficult books and difficult mathematics and so on. Well, that's what parents want everywhere. Um, it's certainly happening in Britain. I mean, that's coming back in schools. But what's happening now is it's being recurated. Do, do you know what I mean by that? I'd like you to expand a little more because I like where you're going. <laughs> well, what they're saying is that, um, okay, we accept that children need to be challenged at school. They need to be stretched. They need their horizons expanded. They need to be enriched. Uh, situating themselves in time and space, learning about history and literature and so on. But we need to redress the wrongs of our colonial past and our sexist institutions and all this sort of thing by recurating the history and the literature that we teach them. Sure. And then also, um, we might just... um, you know, when was the last time this was done? I mean, it was done in Nazi Germany, wasn't it? And it was done uh, yeah. in communist Russia, where they, they believed in stretching the children, but they they rewrote the textbooks. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. You see? So uh, 
that's what's happening in Britain now. People are getting, and it's and it's it could be happening in the states too. So you know, Mark Twain gets dropped from the syllabus because it's racist and right. Uh, but things like that. I'm not an expert on American literature, but well, Ferdy, you mentioned you mentioned you mentioned Baden Powell, and on your recommendation, I, I went and and purchased his his guide to scouting, and just so enjoyed it. Shared it with uh, the headmaster at my school here, and our school, in so many ways, um, is very uh, well. We do some of those things um, just because a lot of it's just common sense, good, clean living, and yeah. um, you know, it's interesting. I was speaking with Adrian just the other day that. You could take a you could take a model like that, well as as Hitler did, and you mm. could replicate it um, without the things that make it good, true, and beautiful. And there sure, you go, you've sure. got the Hitler Youth. That's right, and that's what's going to happen with schools in the future. Now that the argument about content and skills is being won by mm. people like Hirsch, that, that we are going to get content back in our schools mainly because there's such a strong emphasis on mathematics and technology. So people have to have a brain now. Mm. But the, the cultural content that they're going to be taught mm. uh, is, is being skewed. I mean, maybe that's another argument for, I don't know whether I can get away with saying this, but small schools that can kind of get under the radar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, handing on the best that has been thought and said Yes. Use the expression of Thomas Arnold's son, Matthew, um, uh, without getting into trouble for it. Well, if I could add too, and, and I think this will just bring us back full circle to uh, this, uh, the importance of, of the, the spiritual life in, in the life of a school. Um, you know, a school that is willing to commit itself to things uh, that now are seemed quite old fashioned, uh, prayer and fasting. Some of these demons, some of these cultural demons will only be driven out, seems to me, uh, with prayer and fasting, as Christ uh, told his disciples when they came up, up against things that they, that they wrestled against. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, and the family that prays together stays together, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think another thing to, to also um, is... is, is Aspects of common life. We're not monks, neither are you, you know, but, but, but eating together is important for, for teachers, I think. It's not just a question of supervising the children. Yeah. If you're actually sitting next to someone, breaking bread with somebody, discussing with them, sharing with them. True companionship. Yeah. I mean, the conviviality, a convivium is a meal, you know, so that's where it comes from. So, yeah, that's good. Well, I'm, one other thing I'd like to ask um, before we get to our closing question is tell us a little bit about why you think it's really important to sing to your children in class. <laughs> um, well, I think, mm, well, there are a few different reasons. Um, one of them is it gets their attention. Um, and also, um, I mean, in a way, as a headmaster, as, as the person in charge of the school, I set the tone of the school. So many of the faults of the school are my own, and many of the positive points of the school might come from me too. And um, I have a reputation for quite frequently breaking into song, and that 
<laughs> that kind of gets the boys doing it as well. Mm. And they feel less self-conscious. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, you put me on the spot. Is there a profound reason for... Um, I mean, I think it's to do with being joyful, isn't it? Um, uh, that, um, you know, music and laughter should be should be part of a school. And uh, um, I think, I, I, and also it goes back to my own experience of my youth, that um, when I was at school, I remember my teachers at school who were mostly male teachers, um, it was a big school of about a thousand boys, um, about fifty or sixty teachers. They would all sing their hymns gustily, you know, and they would sing tenor and bass parts from the hymn book. Um, most of the teachers, even science teachers, would play the violin or the organ or the piano or what have you. Um, and I think we need to, um, you know, model that um, way of being to 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 the to the, to the children. But it's mainly about being joyful, mm-hmm. and you know, it's Baden Powell says it himself. It's in the Scout Law. Um, in in the in the English Scout Law, Baden Powell says that a scout whistles under all difficulties. Mm-hmm. But in the French version, the Catholic version, um, Father Sevin says that a, a scout sings and smiles under with all difficulties. Uh-huh. So. Um, there's you can certainly by singing and smiling you can you can make yourself joyful and other other people joyful too yes much like saint paul and uh who was it that he was imprisoned with or they were singing hymns yeah that's right although we don't always sing hymns i mean sometimes it could be a robert burns song or Mm -hmm. irish Ah, folk or something Well, right before, uh, we're going to ask you one more question, and then when we close um, the podcast, we will be featuring an excerpt of one of your songs that you've been, that you sang, that you posted on the internet. Unless you'd like to break out into song now, we we could do that if you want to, but I know you have a cold, so if you're not comfortable. (laughs) So we'll put a recording of of you singing a a spot from uh, one of your pieces that you've done. But I would like to close by asking you to think about or share a favorite quote from either, you know, a poem, a song, um, a book, a speech, anything, something that that's very dear to your heart um, and that has had an impact on you. Mm. Um, well, that's a big question. I would say that... Um, that when you're in a position of leadership, which any kind of education is um, about, um, that you need to be prepared to change. And it's very difficult for anybody who gets involved um, in anything like politics or any kind of activism or something like that, um, and they come to it with passion and convictions. I'm speaking from my own experience here. it's very difficult to admit you're wrong and and reassess both your motives and your methods um, without selling out on your convictions um, or losing your passion. And there's, there's a phrase from Newman, which is quite frequently quoted by people from the left and the right, 
to live is to change and to have lived well is to have changed often. And I think that can be abused, but I think it's very, very true that um, unless we're prepared to to be changed, mm. um, um, then we can't change others. So that would be my little quote that that that, that, that uh, I try to try to live by. Quite true. Well, Ferdy, I I knew going into this conversation that it would be um, an encouragement and just very rich. Um, thank you for reading. Thank you for leading your school, and thank you for being an example to us all. And please pray for us. And likewise, do the same for us. Hands of prayer joined across the Atlantic. And um, God bless you in all your educational endeavors. It's been very, very great uh, privilege for me to get to know you over the internet. I hope to see you in person one day. Thank you so much. This was a treat. <laughs> God, God bless. Come, let us thank the God of earth and heaven for England's son and priest of steadfast heart, John Henry Newman, who for truth resplendent shunned worldly fame for thee and all thou art. Who with his mind and heart both fixed upon thee, thy kindly light did follow to the end. Now let us pray for grace to follow after him who named thee boldly master and friend. Praise God the Father, Lord of all creation, and praise the Son, whose death has set us free, and Holy Spirit, free in one forever, help heart, speak to heart, till all rest in Thee. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, Well, my friends... The final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. 
They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.